Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Gormdale Church and Pastor Chris Hemmelman of First City Church. Every Wednesday, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today is a third Wednesday theology and we are in chapter 23 of Herman Bobbing's The Wonderful Works of God, talking about the Church of Christ. One chapter left, listeners. We're almost there. One chapter left. Man, I feel proud of us. Dusty is joking that like the last hundred pages of this book are the scripture index. I so know. It I doesn't. Know. It feels like there's like seven chapters left, but really yeah. there's only one chapter and then a huge index at the end. Uh, Bavik is going to talk to us about the church. What is the church? And what I really like about Herman Bavink in this chapter is we tend as Western people to start with the individual and then move to community. So even as we think about what it means to belong to the church, we think in terms of, I'm a Christian, God has saved me, then I should maybe belong to a local church, or maybe not, they'll just see how it feels to me. Bavink wants to flip that on its head, as the Bible does, and just say, hey, actually, Christ is saving a people. And so we start with the people that he's saving, and your individuality is, you are one of those people. So rather than moving from the individual to the community, Bavik moves from the community to the individual, and so does the scriptures, and so does the whole Hebrew mindset and the the mindset of the New Testament as well. So I think it's a helpful corrective to some of our individualistic tendencies when we think about what does it mean to be saved, what does it mean to be a Christian. We sometimes think that community is like an optional thing of like, well, maybe if, if there's a church in my city that I think preaches the gospel, I might show up there, Dusty. If it's decent. Yeah, if, it's, if they have good worship, I might go there if, you know, if I feel like it. But otherwise, I think I have what I need. And um, Bavink would say, no, you, don't need, you, actually, <laughs> you actually are making a theological misstatement in even thinking that way. Because first of all, to belong to Christ means to belong to his people. Here's how he puts it on page 495. Christ does not grant his benefits to single individuals, nor to a small group of persons, but he gives them out to a great multitude, to the whole of the new humanity, which was chosen in him by the Father from before the foundation of the world. The believer, therefore, never stands apart by himself. He is never alone. In the natural world, every human being is born in the fellowship of his parents, and he is, therefore, without any effort on his own part, a member of a family, of a people, and also of the whole of mankind. So it is also in the spiritual sphere. The believer is born from above, but he receives the new life only in the fellowship of the covenant of grace of which Christ is the head, and at the same time, the content. If by virtue of this regeneration, God is his father, the church may be in a good sense called his mother. I love that Bobbing just said that because that's actually a quote from Origen, I believe, one of the old early Catholic fathers who said no man can have the church or have God for his father who doesn't have the church as his mother. Is that origin or is that... Um, it might have been Tertullian. Am I getting No, confused? it's the guy, it's the... Irenaeus. Um, I'm just going to keep naming <laughs> names until you say yes. It's the, it's the bishop that um, discipled Augustine, basically. Oh, um, Ambrose? Yes, Ambrose, yes. No man can have the church for his... Or no man can have God for his father who doesn't have the church as his mother. Bob makes just like, yeah, he's basically right. If you can call God your father, then the church can in a good sense be called your mother. What I think the corrective is to much modern Protestant Christianity is 
this sense that the church is optional or is like a an additional thing. Um, Bob Inc. and you know Saint Ambrose and others are calling us to remember that actually, by belonging to Christ, we belong to the church and we we receive our birth through the work of the church, through the ministry of the church, through the people of God. And you can't be an individual Christian apart from being belonging to the people of God. Those things go together. And this gives strong theological underpinning to what we have been talking about, like when we were getting into community and counseling. It's, you know, there's practical outworkings of caring for one another and the good of caring for one another. But underneath all of that is this truth about how God has saved us into a community. So we're, we're not just hating on psychiatry, as some people may think we are, which we're not. We're not. Good caveat. <laughs> but the the but more than that, what we're trying to uphold is saying this is a beautiful truth that God has saved us into a people, and that's how we we ought to think of ourselves, and that's a, a proper way to see the the glory of the power of the gospel. What I also love in Bovink's blend of biblical and systematic theology is that he reminds us that the church takes shape as we move throughout the New Testament. So you have in the Jerusalem church as Pentecost is happening. You know, you you have Jewish people who are familiar with the synagogue because that was the way that the Jewish people organized themselves throughout the dispersion. So you had this synagogue understanding among the Jewish people as you as many of those people come to faith in Christ and they're asking, well, what does it look like for believers in Christ to gather together? They sort of follow the pattern of the synagogue. It's like, well, let's get together on the Lord's Day and read the scriptures and pray and share a meal together. And then as that sort of takes shape and grows beyond Jerusalem, then you start to see this pattern of local churches, and you see the apostles particularly using their leadership and authority to establish local churches throughout the empire. And then you have the apostles appointing elders and deacons in each church and creating the offices of the church. And that's one of the things that's unique as we think about the church is it takes shape progressively as the as the gospel goes forward. So it's like, a, you know, in a sense, the church is an old reality because God's people have existed, you know, since the beginning of time. But in a sense, the, the order, the shape, the form that the church takes, uh, takes shape as the New Testament goes forward. Which becomes, tracing that becomes important as we think about our own ecclesiology. Like if we just sort of grab a spot like earlier in that progression, and if we're not careful about how we understand that, we can potentially apply some of that incorrectly to our own ecclesiology. So that's a good point. You want to give us some examples? Yeah. Like, what do you mean? Um, I don't know if I have anything that, that helpful to say. All right. We'll just let your, we'll just let your statement stand then. Yeah. In most systematic treatments of the church, you'll find writers working through what we say in the apostles creed. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And so following that pattern, Bavink does that. He talks about the unity of the church. What does it mean that the church is one? He talks about what does it mean that the church is holy? What does it mean that the church is Catholic? And what does it mean that the church is apostolic? Um, I find his treatment here helpful. It's very classically Protestant. He wants you to understand when we say the word Catholic, we say it with a small c. You know, we don't mean it's connected to Rome or the Pope. We mean it is universal and exists everywhere. When we talk about what does it mean that it's apostolic, he talks about the apostles as the the shapers of the church through their preaching of the word. And so he really connects the apostolic nature of the church to the the priority of the word, the scriptures, the proclamation of the gospel within the church. But this is a real traditional treatment 
of the church in any classic systematic theology is to sort of work through those four distinctives and explain what do they mean? Because all, all of us would say, well, how is the church a unity? Because it looks pretty divided and fractured. And so uh, Bavink mentions that. He says, at, its present time, at the present time, its multitudinous denominations and sects present a most lamentable spectacle of disunity. <laughs> most lamentable. Which I thought is a nice line. Still, something of the old unity can be seen in as much as all Christian churches are still separated from the world by one and the same baptism. Um, and I, I, that's a helpful, it's been a helpful category for me. I heard a preacher say one time, um, hey, what what unifies the church is what would get someone killed in any non-majority Christian country. You know, like if you just go to some place in the, in the world and just say, what would get you killed? Well, getting baptized. Like, you know, it's really like mm-hmm. once you get baptized, you're making a break with whatever your sort of cultural and religious tradition is. And so in every culture around the world, there's an understanding that if you're going to get baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're now identifying yourself with Christians. And so there is a sense of very clear, visible unity of the church worldwide, despite the many differences that exist from place to place, because of the fact that we share one baptism. And that's the thing that sort of defines and marks um, leaving behind whatever your family of origin and religious tradition was and coming into the Christian faith. Chris, I like on page 510, he he basically says, um, churches have to organize themselves somehow. And so it's good for them to do that. He has this uh, sentence, every organization of human beings must, in order to avoid confusion and dissolution, have regulations governing its gatherings and activities. The Church of Christ is also subject to this general law of human society. I think that's an interesting way of saying it because he's basically saying, hey, as a church or as a, as a part of human society, a church has to organize itself. He's not trying to tie it so much to special revelation as much as he's just saying, well, of course, a church has to have an orderly way of doing things. And so there's freedom for it to organize itself. Yeah. But his point being organization matters mm-hmm. where it's it's just not kind of a free-for-all. So you're you know, for lack of a better term, hierarchy or your structure, uh, are good things. And, and again, you, like you said, you may, you may, there may be points of disagreement or, Hey, I do things a little bit differently, but valuing that, that order that God has given to human society and seeing the good of that we should embrace. Yes. And I, I, th- I just thought it was interesting. That he sort of tied that to a general principle that anywhere humans are, they organize themselves, Yeah, you know, cause sometimes I see people try to tie that real specifically to like, you know, here's how the Bible says we should organize ourselves. And certainly there are teachings in the scriptures on that. But Bavink just seems to say, yeah, of course, wherever wherever human beings are, they organize themselves. And that's good. That's how God means it to be. At first, he writes, there was no other office in the church but that of the apostles. They did everything that is being done nowadays by the pastors and elders and deacons. But this condition could not long continue. He basically says, as the church grew, obviously the apostles couldn't do everything. And so they raise up co-laborers, first of all, and then we see that famous passage in Acts chapter 6 where some scholars would say they're appointing deacons, and some would just say it's not deacons, but it's a deacon-like kind of responsibility. And then finally, we see the development of the office of elder later on in the missionary journeys of Paul, as we read in Acts 14, that they went and appointed elders in every town. Um, So we see the church sort of start with the apostles in Jerusalem, expand to include helpers and deacons, and then finally to include the office of elder. And, you know, the scriptures give us clear biblical qualifications for each of these offices, elder and deacon, and lets us know the kind of people who serve in these offices and how, how they should be 
chosen and structured and appointed and et cetera. I also love that in there, he says that there's no such thing as a dominating power. Since Christ alone is the head of the church, the one master and Lord, there can never arise in the church any single power which coexists alongside of or over against his power, but only such as he himself has delegated and as remains limited by him. He's just saying, hey, just always remember that in every single church, every everything that's gathering itself, Christ is the head of the church. Well, and he's saying in that paragraph also, he's trying to, to point out how the New Testament has both a congregational element and an uh, apostolic element. So he's saying, like, as, as you see how elders are appointed, the congregation, you know, puts men forward and then the apostles lay hands on them or the elders lay hands on them. So you see this dual nature of like, these are the people recognize these people as like, yep, the, we want these people to lead us. But then also there's sort of a, a laying on of hands from the elders. And so in that way, what he's, what he's pointing out is there's actually a beautiful sort of symmetry and sharing of power and authority where you don't see, you know, a hierarchical structure and you don't see a real flat structure. You see the congregation having a voice and the elders having authority and mm-hmm. both of those things working together. Yeah, and he does start to spell out some of the ways in church history he would see see this as kind of going sideways with the the rise of a bishop, yeah. the episcopacy. Doggone um, Episcopals. Where it it it, it <laughs> moved, yeah. It moved from that plurality of elders and congregation dynamic to somebody sort of rising above that whole structure and and he's making the argument that that's that's actually a distortion of what scripture lays out. Yes. And he, of course, lands at Calvin and says, of all forms of church order, the Presbyterian system, as it was restored by Calvin, corresponds best to that of the apostolic time. Good job, I Calvin. like a guy just ending his yeah. whole paragraph with that. You know what, guys? You know what's most apostolic? The Presbyterian system as restored by Calvin. <laughs> I just like Bobbink taking a position and saying, hey, this is how it is. So he's not a Baptist. He's a Presbyterian, okay? And a Calvinist Presbyterian at that. It's funny the way that he talks about Calvin. To Calvin goes the honor that while doing battle against the Roman priestly hierarchy, he restored the offices of elder. Like he, he talks about the Reformation just being like a, you know, that was nice of Calvin to do that for us. Yeah, thank you, you to, to do battle back. against the papists. Yeah, good job, Calvin, bringing it back. Somebody's got to do battle against the papists. Well, the, the Lutherans restored the office of preaching, but they gave the rule of the church and the care of the poor entirely into the hands of the civic authority. Oh yeah. So he's like drawing distinctions of like, Hey, yeah. the Luther's it's they, we got preaching back because of Luther and Lutherans, but, but it took Calvin to restore the government yeah. of the church to a proper place. And by the way, just so you understand your church history, this is uh, one of the things that um, people really appreciate and respect John Calvin for is he is, he's sort of known as like a, a theologian of salvation, but actually he's, he's a church polity guy. Oh yeah. Yeah. Extraordinary. And people do realize that one of the things Calvin did in his sort of um, deposit his heritage in the Reformation was he he gave clear principles of how should the church be led, who should lead it, how should it be ordered and structured, how should it relate to the civil magistrate, to the secular authorities. And so he did give a lot of thought and attention to that primarily because of where he was in Switzerland and because of how the Reformation was progressing in places like Germany and in places like France. And he just saw some of the clear problems that were happening as you had the restoration of the preaching of the gospel, but you still had church offices in the hand, you know, too closely connected to political authorities. And so this is one of the, one of the ongoing questions in Western Christendom is 
how does the church relate to the state? You got the Anglican yeah. model where the church and the state are very united. You got the American Congregationalist model where the church and the state are totally separated, and you got a lot of sort of mediating propositions in between. And so one of Calvin's legacies is is in the area of church polity and how should we think about the leadership and authority that God has given to the church as distinct from that that he's given to the state or to the secular authority. So what does the church do when it comes to baptism, communion? Are you guys cool with just me and my buddies having communion in my living room? I'm not or is cool that, with that. Why no. not? No. What about Bob? What's he think? Um, well, first of all, Bob wants you to know that by the word, it's preaching of the word that should define the church. Uh, he says the word of God is in very fact the soul of the church. And he's borrowing an expression from Calvin there. Uh, the service, oh, I like this line, the service of the word includes its preservation, translation, interpretation, dissemination, defense, and proclamation to all men. Thus the church remains built up on the foundations of the apostles and prophets and is the pillar and ground of the truth. And then here's how Boving says it, Dusty, the word has its confirmation in the sacraments. So it's interesting that the reformers and Boving following in their stead sees the word as sort of the grounding authority of the church, but then the word being confirmed in and sealed by and signified by the sacraments. So it's interesting that they never, they never imagine a church that has just one or the other. They understood that the mistake of the Catholic church was that you had sacramental theology, but very weak understanding of the word. And the danger in the Reformation was that we would restore the authority of the word, but then that the sacraments would be dishonored. And so they very much understood that the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are confirmation of seals of the word as it's proclaimed. And they serve for the strengthening of our faith. Here we go. I'm going to throw something down to you guys right here. here Page 5, 523, the, the paragraph kind of right in the middle. Specifically, baptism is a sign and seal of the benefit of forgiveness and of regeneration being incorporated into the fellowship with Christ in his church. Therefore, baptism is ministered not only to such adults as have been won for Christ through the work of missions, but to the children of believers also. I knew you were going to bring that up. Wow. Go, come on, go at Bob Inc. Wow. You want me to argue with Bob Inc? He's, <laughs> he's just wrong. I mean, what do you want me to say? Oh, uh, someday you'll see. Well, I think it's you okay. just got to keep reading when he says, and when these children grow up and by public confession, personally acquiesce in that covenant. Yeah. That's my question is why do we got to wait till the kids grow up and personally acquiesce until they can come to the Lord's table, Chris? <laughs> what, what, I mean, what difference does that make? I'm just saying, why do we give them one, but not the other? Some Science. people do give them both. Well, I'm just saying, let's be consistent and give them both or give them neither. <laughs> Bavik wants to say we should baptize these children because they are included with their parents in the covenant of grace, which yes. I agree with. Yes. Um, Belong but to the what, church. And when these children grow up and by public confession personally acquiesce in that covenant and have come to the years of discretion and can distinguish the body and blood of the Lord, then they are called together with the whole church to proclaim the Lord's death until he come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To be fair, when I read that, I was like, he's not, he's not landing anywhere. He's landing all over the place. He's landing all over well, the place. Well, he's, I mean, he's, he's doing what a, a classic paedo-baptist does, yes. which is to say kids should get one side but not the other. Yes. For no, for no reason other than we're not sure why. We, can't, we don't have a Bible verse on this one. This has just been our custom. Send yes. your emails. Because I'm, I'm fine with that tension. Well, I'm, I'm gl- fine loving, living in that tension. I'm glad you are. It's, it's a leftover tension from when church and state were one. So 
That's, that's my <laughs> oh, contention. Wow. 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 I, I'm, I, the only reason infant baptism exists is because we needed it to make people good citizens. Wow. That's your, that's your theory? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's your theory. That's my theory. Wow. If wow. you believe that. That's a great way to dismiss 500 years of covenant <laughs> theology. <laughs> it was all just about the government. Well, I mean. Nothing, nothing about signs and seals and administrations of covenants. No, and, but that's actually what I think it is. I think that's what the Bible says it, it is. That's why we should only give it to people who actually know what they're doing. <laughs> have taken on but, the but, I mean, covenant. But you're essentially making an argument for paedo-communion more than you're arguing against paedo-baptism. Yeah, you're saying be consistent. Right. I'm saying if you're going to be a paedo-baptist, then explain to me why we don't let them take communion. So, and, but, and but again, sadly, that, that doesn't. Dis, that 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 doesn't dismiss the argument for pedo baptism more than it just says no, it you're does, being inconsistent with your own belief. It dismisses Bobbing's argument because I'm I'm pointing out the same thing Dusty does is just he's not making an argument he's just making an assertion. Well, That's sure. Different. I mean he's not trying to. He's 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 preaching to the choir largely. Apparently, in this book, so oh, I guess I'm not in choir. the choir. Apparently, I'm not in the choir. I mean, Romans does say that Romans four does say that circumcision was the sign and seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith, right? Yes. Yes, Before yes, which we would yeah. say is baptism, right? For us, the sign and seal of the righteousness we have by faith? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, we would. Yes, we absolutely Good. would. Good, We would say the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is that what's changed is that you enter into the new covenant by grace through faith rather than by being born into Abraham's family. All of us are now sons of Abraham but, by faith. But, <laughs> That's how we become a son of Abraham. But doesn't Paul later in Romans say that they still had to take the promise by faith? Not all Israel is Israel. Oh, of course. Yes. So absolutely. it's the same in the Old Testament. Yeah. But the I sign think. is different. This, <laughs> why, why do we say? The sign why do we is say, different. Yeah, yes. Yeah. The sign is different, but the meaning is the same. Uh, the sign and seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. So there's discontinuity in the... The, the actual sign. The, the possession of faith. But there's con there's exact continuity in who receives the sign. I would say, well, yeah, believers and their children. That's the continuity. The same. Yeah. Yeah. You and Bobbing. You mean Bobbing. I know. Just you and him. I would just say. You you wanted this to get a little bit more feisty, so I was just trying to get feisty. I here. appreciate that. You did a good <laughs> job. Speaking of feisty, he does talk about discipline, so. He does? Well, oh, not, yeah. not enough. The exercise of discipline. To the ministration of the word and sacrament, the exercise of discipline must finally be added. Discipline, which is also sometimes called the power of the keys, and was first given to Peter and then to the whole church in its official organization, consists of the fact that the church, through its office bearers, says to the righteous in the name of the Lord that it will be well with him, and to the ungodly that they shall harvest the fruit of their doings. Yeah, he doesn't really say a whole lot about discipline. He said, yeah, that should be there. You guys just says it gets admonished, directed to stiff neck persistence in sin. Yeah. Yeah. And this is another one of those within the Reformation, the marks of the church, the yes. preaching of the gospel, the right administration of the sacraments. Some theologians like Calvin will include discipline to some degree. Others would just go preaching of the word sacraments. So how much discipline or how much a theologian goes into discipline and to what degree they put emphasis on it is it's kind of scattered within the reform tradition. So in some ways, Bob Inc is just kind of representative of that he's, he's not necessarily big on talking about discipline, but yeah. Bob Inc has two lines in this chapter, which is quite lengthy. 
that I love. One is a human being is a companionable creature and he does not like being alone. And then he says, the church is therefore not an idea or an ideal, but a reality which is becoming something and will become something because it is already something. So his argument for the church in this whole chapter is, you're not meant to be alone. We get that in the first couple chapters of Genesis. It's not good for you to be alone. And the church is God's remedy to that. Hmm. And it's within the church that we are saved and sanctified. And I think mm-hmm. that's, you know, going back to your point that you made it, Chris, about like how we walk through suffering and experience healing and care for one another, being in the context of community. I, I think when we have, I, I think one, I guess what I would say is one of the weakest areas for, I think, modern theology is ecclesiology. I just think the average mm-hmm. Christian has a very poor ecclesiology. And so a chapter like this, where Bavink in a very simple, basic reformation way just says, hey, here's what the church is. Here's what it means to be part of the church. Here's why it matters that you understand that Christ has drawn you into the church and that you cannot grow as a Christian apart from the church. I think that, though it though it's in a sense properly basic, is maybe the most important thing that modern Christians in America need to understand and embrace. And if, I think if we did, if we had a, just a healthier ecclesiology, it would really help us have a clearer vision of church membership, a better understanding of what is church discipline and why does it matter for us, a better understanding of why do we need the sacraments and why do we need fellowship and why do we need to be in communion with one another. Um, so in a sense, the work that Bobbing is doing here is not, I don't feel like it's, you know, dramatic, but it is profound for <laughs> how it needs to correct some of our individualistic ways of thinking in modern America and how we sort of tend to deprioritize the local church. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We always love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.